0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Terran Show. I have a very special episode for you today. It's been long awaited, many times requested. I am finally going to be releasing part two of my interview with Brent Walgemont, my fellow live feed correspondent. Uh, So if you haven't listened to the first one, it's episode two of The Terran Show. I highly suggest you go back. You listened to that one first. Um, I never could have anticipated the just tremendous response I had from that interview. Um, it's it's it was really humbling and 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 amazing and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, it was just uh, really incredible in it. Like not even just the response, but just even the experience of talking to Brent uh, was fantastic. And then, of course, the response was just amazing. And really just it was everything that I ever could have hoped from starting this podcast. And so I'm very excited to continue the discussion with brent this is actually this won't be the end of brent either uh we got through a lot of stuff in this conversation uh but there was even more to go through at the end of it so there will be a part three for brent walgamot uh but uh you don't have to ask me for it uh it'll come it'll come someday <laughs> don't worry about it um but yes I'm 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 very very excited about this. Uh I've been sitting on this for a little while. I wanted to give the first one some breathing room uh and now I I'm so happy that people are going to be able to listen to this and respond to it and uh and I hope that it means something to some people because uh it meant something to me. I think it meant something to Brent. So um thank you everyone who listened to the first one. Uh again I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that one. Um and then Head on to this one, and uh, I hope you enjoy.
1: He's not human, he is like a machine, making more podcasts than you've ever seen.
0: He was never programmed for a life because the show is the extent of his social life. It's The Daron Show, The Daron Show. Don't ask if he's single, you already know it's the Show. A simple name for a simple guy with a simple face. It's The Terran Show. Hello everyone and welcome to The Terran Show. It's time to finish up the interview I had with Brent Walgamont. There's so much to talk about with Brent. Last time we talked about his time as an escort, what got him into it, all of that, and then what led into the uh michael peterson trial and everything that went along with that so there's still a lot more to talk about with brent and i'm very excited to do so so
1: uh i've, I've got brent with me how you doing brent hey Taryn nice to be back for round two yes i'm excited yes we're back yes. I'm, I'm back for round two Taryn um I'm, I'm i'm good for uh, twice in one night so uh here i am <laughs> <laughs> well it's uh
0: it's six isn't it that's what i that's i know I right heard.
1: yeah it's actually six yeah i know right yeah. Six six in one day yeah
0: how can you not be intrigued by Brent Walgamont. He, uh, he's lived a very full life. Very interesting. Yeah,
1: I mean, my life has never been boring. That's the one thing is that I have always thought that I would die young. And I it's not something that... It's not like a, a, a fate or anything. Like, I, I I I want it to happen. I just always assumed that I was going to die young at some point in my life because I could never really imagine myself getting old. And here I am, 42 years old. And so I don't know if that's going to come true or not. But... Uh, I always was a bit, like, ravenous to want to grab onto anything that I could in life and experience it.
0: All right. Well, let's get right into this, Brent, because I think the thing that that we had to skirt around the most in talking about the Peterson trial was your addiction, which uh, I I believe... Did did that start while you were still in the military?
1: Yes. It started while I was in the military. I was undergoing some... uh, issues with my teeth and my gums my gums had always been very gummy and so i met a prosthodontist in the military who decided to take me under her wing and basically give me a full set of crowns and uh in order to get there though there was a lot of pain that i had to go through and so they put me on a drug called percocet the interesting thing about the military was like percocet is a schedule two drug i mean that's like top of the line they didn't really have anything like schedule three or schedule four. They just jumped up to schedule two, and that was probably a bit of a misjudge on their part. Because uh, me and Percocet, we got along like uh, peas and carrots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you took this drug to to deal with these issues with your with your teeth?
1: Right. I, they had given me a prescription for Percocet to deal with the pain that they had put me through as far as they had cut away some of my gum to expose more tooth structure in order to give me crowns. So obviously that's a pretty painful experience. They'd get given me Percocet. The other thing to consider and why I became an addict was I was also a medic at this time in the military and I was a pharmacy tech. So I worked in the pharmacy. So as they had given me prescriptions for my mouth I had started taking Percocet and I really liked it. And I'll never forget how I basically started on my life of addiction because I had only been given two prescriptions for Percocet and I had really liked it. But of course, my prescription was going to come, it was going to run out and they weren't going to refill it and I wasn't really in pain anymore. We had a woman come by the pharmacy and this woman came in every month and she always had a prescription for the max dose of Percocet, which is you can take 12 a day, obviously 30 days in a month. That would be 360 pills. She would come in for a prescription for 360 pills. And she had been filled every time. And this day she came in, they were onto her that she had stolen a prescription pad from a doctor. Basically, I was looking at a woman who I would later switch places with in life because I would eventually... Become What this woman was doing. And we needed to catch her. And so my sergeant at the time said, he set up this whole sting where we were going to fill her prescription, we were going to allow her to take it, and then we would arrest her. And so I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Let's do this. So we got the pills out of the vault. We had a regular prescription sent through the machine. So the pills were accounted for. You know, obviously the pharmacy keeps track of controlled medication. They know exactly how many pills are supposed to be there at any given time. They're legally required to do so. But these pills were out of the military. They were gone as far as the count goes. So when she came to get them, I gave them to her like normal. She took them. She walked off. The police arrested her. They brought the Percocet back to us. My sergeant handed the pills to me and said, put these back in stock. I said, okay, sergeant. But that's not what happened. I made a choice that day and thought, you know, no one's going to miss these. So I'll just take them with me. And uh, that was probably one of the worst choices I ever made.
0: Uh, So. You said that you liked these pills. Uh, I don't know if, um, if any of the audience knows this of me, but I know you know this of me, that I, I've actually never had any alcohol or drugs in my life. So can you describe to me, like, what, what was it about these pills that you liked so much that made you want to take
1: these uh, away? Well, that's the thing. Taryn, I was very much like you. I had never had any drugs or any alcohol up until this point in my life. I was 25 years old, actually 26 years old, in the military. I had never had one drop of alcohol or one drug. I had never had anything. Basically, my body was like virgin pure. It was as white as white can get. And so I was very much like you. And I realized when I took these pills, they made me very, very happy. Far more happy than I was at the time. And I wasn't all that happy being in the military. Now, look, I liked the military. It was very, very good for me. I needed the structure. I liked the black and whiteness of the military. Um, There were clear rules about what you can and can't do, and I responded very well to that. However, the one thing that I didn't like about it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because I had been out since I was 16. I had been out to everybody, and I effectively had to go back in the closet when I entered the military. And that really, really... Was hard for me. I didn't like having to butch it up. You know, I I, I can talk like a straight guy if I want to, but uh, you know, it's not always easy to. And uh, in the military, I had to talk like this. Yes, Sergeant. Yes. Like I mean, I mean, I can I can I can be butch if I want to, but you know, if if I don't need to be butch, then I really don't want to be butch. I want to be like Fabulous Brent. So uh, this is uh, actually this is actually a little window into my my escorting too, because when I would be an escort, I wouldn't talk like I'm talking to you right now. I would talk like this. How are you doing? Let's let's go hook up. So uh, let's 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 have some fun. Let's have some like come on. Let me come over here. Let me fuck the hell out of you. Like I mean, I would really just give it to people. Like I knew they wanted to have it. They want the fantasy. And so in the military, I felt like you know a certain amount of masculinity was expected of me. And so I felt like I had to constantly act like that, and that really dragged on me after a while. And so. I wasn't all that happy with my life. I didn't have any partner or any boyfriend. I couldn't have that in the military. And so the drugs were good for me because they made me feel a lot happier than I felt at the time.
0: It's interesting that you felt like you had to play a role in the military in a very similar way that you played a role as an escort.
1: Yeah, it was uh, the stereotypical masculine man It was the hetero guy that everybody sort of knows. And, you know, maybe I didn't have to do that. But I was so self-conscious about myself in the military. And my parents had worried about me going into the military because, and I'll just share this as a really quick story, right when I decided to go into the military, my family was aghast. Because although they wanted me to make something of myself, there was a 60 Minutes profile about a boy who had had his head bashed in with a baseball bat at Fort Campbell, which is actually very close to where I live right now, here in Kentucky. And it was a big to-do in the military. And I was like, Mom, that's not going to happen to me. Like I I, I can butch it up if I need to. They're never going to find out about me. And uh, so uh, that's probably in part why I felt like I needed to act like the way that I did.
0: Yeah, we mentioned this on the previous interview that you came out to your
1: parents at 16, right? I was forced out of the closet at, at age 16. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I was a bit of a horn dog, And uh, again, as I mentioned on the previous podcast, I had no outlet for expressing my sexuality. And this is like uh, 1991, 1992. So there were still a lot of homophobes. A lot of people didn't understand what being gay was. Uh, they thought it was just a bunch of child molesters and perverts. They had no real idea about what it was like to be gay and how normal we are like i 'm so average as far as my life goes. You know me and jay we come home, we watch TV, we have dinner, you know we go to bed, we wake up, I fix dinner, I fix breakfast i mean it's just it 's just a normal experience, but people didn 't understand that in one thousand nine hundred and ninety one so my parents didn 't really respond well to my coming out of the closet add to that the fact that my dad was also a preacher, and how bad is it going to look for the preacher's son to be a faggot? So uh, my parents didn't really respond well to me being gay. Um, They found some porn magazines that I had stashed away, and uh, they confronted me about it. And I sort of broke down to them, and I said, you know, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. And I remember the reaction that my mom had to this, which was, what do you mean you're gay? Like, it's just like, that's not possible. It was just crazy to me looking back that they never suspected it because that previous Christmas and I, you're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. I had asked for a Barbra Streisand album (laughs) for one of my Christmas gifts and my parents got it for me. And yet, they had no idea that their son was gay. So come on, like I mean, like use your head, little. Come on. I had never talked about girls. I never had any actions with women. I never really dated anybody. The girl I took to prom was like this uh, heavyset girl who I had no sexual attraction to. So uh, you know, I mean, my my parents, uh, they they should have known. So what was it like for you as a
0: kid? Like, when did you know that you were gay, or at least? Uh, be get familiarized with the concept that this is what you were like what how, how what I is mean, that whole process like? i can
1: remember as far back as five years old as being attracted to boys like bluntly speaking here you know i always keep it real with you guys i can remember being five years old and wanting to suck some dick like that's just <laughs> how i interacted with with people at the time of course i never did anything about it but i wanted to do that and then when i was 12 years old, there was a boy down the street who would later turn out to be a straight boy. Or so I think, because he's married now and he has two kids. But uh, his name was Lito. So he was uh, Mexican-American. And he was hot. And I really, really liked him. And I think he knew that I was gay. And there was a little bit of flirting that was going on. And I played a lot of tennis at the time. And we had, to make a long story short. Eventually, we got to a bet in a tennis match where the loser would have to give the winner a blowjob. And I've never lost a match so badly in my life. <laughs> 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 Obviously, there was a lot of lead up to this, a lot of mm-hmm. like joshing back and forth. And I think that he wasn't even sure exactly what he wanted. I, I I don't even know if he necessarily wanted this, but you know, you're 12, 13 years old, your home runs are going like crazy. And, um, uh, eventually we went back to my house and I did it. And I knew that that was for me because, uh, I enjoyed it very much. And, uh, he, on the other hand did not, he like enjoyed it at the time, but the minute that he was finished, he walked out and didn't talk to me for three weeks until three weeks later. When he came back and knocked on my my door and wanted to do it again. So that was our little dance that we did. Every three to four weeks, he would knock on my door. He would say, are you alone? I would say, yes. We'd go up to my room. I would blow him. It would be done. He wouldn't talk to me in school. He wouldn't talk to me in real life for another three weeks until the guilt dissipated and he was back on my doorstep. So we did that for like an entire year. That was what I was doing at age 13 until I moved away from him to a new school. Okay,
0: so you said your father was a was a preacher. So, did was that something that did you understand the concept of what it meant to be gay, and that this
1: was something that you felt like you needed to hide? Yes, um, my my and my father was a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, but my father was never a brimstone and fire kind of preacher. My father was always a loving father. My my father always grabbed me and kissed me and told me how much he loves me. I mean, he still does that to this day, and he's, what, 67 years old. So uh, I never felt like I was unloved by my father or my mother. My My parents were great. I feel like more than anything, it wasn't when I eventually came out to them, it wasn't that I was gay that was the problem. They just worried about me. They knew the world was cruel. They knew that I would be subject to a lot of bigotry. They knew that HIV was a huge issue for people that were gay, obviously for people who are straight too, but it was much more prevalent within the gay community. And I think that they were just worried about their son. Again, that would rear its head again in the Peterson trial. They didn't care about what was happening in the Peterson trial. They just wanted to make sure that I was okay. So, you know, again, many gay kids had it way worse than I did, where their parents would throw them out or disown them or tell them that they didn't love them. My parents, while they did have a rough time with me being gay, they always told me that they loved me. And, uh, But that doesn't mean it was all fun and roses at the time, because when I came out to my parents... Um, or I was essentially forced out of the closet by them finding my porn magazines, they decided that they were going to send me to a Christian counselor in order to fix me. Now, I don't think they really said it like that, but that was the gist, and I understood that that was the gist. And uh, up until then, I had not really wrapped my head around the fact that I was gay. I had done a lot of reading in a lot of magazines, and although I knew that I was sexually attracted to boys at the time, I was convinced that it was just a phase, or I was hoping that it was a phase, because there's a lot of research where you know, like boys have sexual encounters with other boys when they're like you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, even up to sixteen, but then like the urge for females kicks in, and then they start you know marrying and living happily ever after. And I was like, okay, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to become sexually attracted to women. I know it's going to happen at some point in my life. I remember even like, I remember even jacking off to different guys and trying to switch my brain to like the hottest girl in my class, who actually I'm Facebook friends with. I won't give her name. But uh, she's she's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, she was my idea of what a sexual partner should be as far as women goes. And I tried to switch my brain to her. And I think I was able to fake myself into believing that I was sexually attracted to women. But I knew that there was... There is no way that this is going to work. It was just something that was innate in me and I hadn't yet come to terms with it. So I went along with my parents. I said, okay, I'll go see this counselor. I felt guilty as hell because my parents were just crushed. They didn't want me to be gay. They were certain that it was just like a phase or something that I just needed to talk out. And I wanted to make my parents happy because I was always a good son, Taryn. I mean, I've always tried to treat my parents about as well as I could. And uh, I didn't want them to be embarrassed by me. And so I said, okay, I'll go along with this.
0: So what was that process like? What kind of things did that person do uh
1: nothing like you hear in the movies this is the one part of my life that isn't like the movies you know you always hear about these kids that go through under electroshock therapy or something like that uh i he it was never anything like that with me i went to talk to him he tried to convince me that there were other holes in my life that i was trying to fill i have have i've again i mentioned the previous podcast i'm a fan of once upon a time and there's a part of once upon a time where they talk about how you have a hole in your heart that you're trying to fill And he was convinced that I had a hole in my heart, that I was trying to fill with other stuff. So he was convinced that I didn't love myself or that my parents hadn't given me enough love or I was too big of a mama's boy and my dad didn't give me enough love. He was always looking for something to explain away why I was attracted to boys. Me being attracted to boys just wasn't an option for him. And to make a long story short, I'm just going to cut to the chase. This was a total failure. Like He gave me a couple books that were like supposedly self-help books. Um, one of them was called The Search for Significance. And uh, it was just a lot of self-help. But even though I did probably need some self-help at the time, being gay was not a result of me not loving myself. Me being gay was just me being gay. And the fact that I didn't really love myself at the time was sort of just happenstance, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Do, uh, do, you, do you think you know why that was happening to you at the time? Like why you didn't feel like you loved yourself? Well, it was very
1: tough. It was... Uh, I loved... Well, that's not true. I was going to say I loved the fact that I was gay. I love the fact that I'm gay now, but back then I didn't. But I loved the fact that I was special. I felt like I was very smart and I, I felt like that I had a different purpose than many of the mundane people in my high school class. But on the other hand... I wasn't that social when I was younger. Like I always look back and I think if I know if I knew then what I knew now, I would have been like the life of the party. But I was such a nerd when I was in school that I never really interacted with people very well. And the, the, the issue was that I couldn't relate to them because I couldn't let my hair down. I couldn't open up to them. I couldn't tell them, hey, I'm attracted to your best friend. I'm attracted to this guy. I mean, there were urges that I had, base needs that I had, emotional needs that I had that I just could not fulfill. And I couldn't be honest with any of these people about. So because of that, I started to hate myself because I wasn't able to express that.
0: Did you ever face any any kind of, like, uh, distinct adversity or discrimination because of your sexuality? Nothing more than I think
1: anybody else would face. There were a couple of asshole guys in my high school class who always tried to give me a hard time, but they never beat me up or anything like that. It was more just like, hey, fucking faggot kind of thing, fucking queer, fucking homo. Like, I mean, it's just the typical things you hear as a gay guy. It was nothing new to me. And... uh like anything in life, I would start to wear those things as a badge of honor. So uh, as I would come out of the closet and sort of wrap my arms around the fact that, okay, I'm gay. This is going to stick. I'm not going to start suddenly liking girls. This is the reality. Uh, I like many gay men. You know, you, you, you grab the words that are hurtful to make them not so hurtful anymore. You know what I mean? You grab it so that you own that word that the haters don't own that word. That's why many people I feel like in the African community grab the N word because they want to own that word. They don't want the people that hurt them to own that word. Likewise with people in the gay community, I feel like a lot of gays they own like you see like the the gays marching in the parades in the late 1990s saying, you know, we're here. We're queer. Get used to it. They just want to take back those words because they don't want to give them any more power than they already have. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, the um, as far as being bullied by anybody, it wasn't really an issue for me because I was smart and I kept to myself and I didn't really... Like, the guy you see before you today is not the guy who was existing back then. If I was... The way I am now, back then, I'm certain that I would have gotten into some fights with some people, but fortunately for me, I was able to keep my nose clean and uh, not cause too much of a ruckus. Well, I know you did get into a, uh, a speech
0: team, right?
1: That was my one saving grace. Yeah, that was, uh, that was great um i was never good with athletics when i was in school mainly because i had no self-confidence in myself and it all related to the fact that i was gay like if i had been able to come out of the closet and be who i was and be open and proud i would have been great at football or baseball or anything i mean like i'm actually really athletic and i didn't even know it at the time but i had no self-confidence and because of that I didn't really do any sports or anything. But speech was the one thing that I knew I was good at. Because I went to Plymouth High School in Indiana. And speech was a very, very big deal in Indiana. Speech team in general. It's not speech and debate. Debate was like a whole other thing. Speech team was what I did. And it was something that required smarts and required professionalism and required a way to... You had to have an ability to articulate well in front of other people and basically sell them on whatever you're trying to get them to believe. Like if you're doing oratory, you're trying to give them a speech and you want to empathize with them so that they will understand what you're trying to tell them and rank you highly for that speech. So uh, speech team was something that I quickly found out that I was very, very good at. Luckily for me, Plymouth High School had a very strong speech team and they were able to train me in such a way where the gifts that they gave me and the training that they gave me was something that I would carry with me through my entire life. I encourage anybody who is out there, if they have a chance to do speech team or speech and debate when they're in high school or college, to please do it. Because it gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a way to how to present myself to other people, how to articulate, how to talk, how to empathize with other people, how to present myself in a professional manner. And uh, it's just something that if I hadn't have done that, I don't think I would be the person that you see before you today.
0: So... The Going through school, you said you, you did really well in school. You, you were you know this uh, very, very good uh, speech team competitor,
1: <laughs> um, I guess you would call it. Um, you said you eventually became a state champion? Yeah, I was a stud, man. I was a stud when it comes to speech team and grades in general. Like I was an A, A-plus student, and uh, speech team was something that gave me a sense of purpose in life because it was something for me to grab onto as an extracurricular, and I was really good at it. And I eventually worked my way through the ranks and uh, ended up a state champion. And I went on to nationals. Almost made the national finals. Actually, you know the guy who plays the snowman in Frozen, the Disney movie, Josh Gad? I, I don't know. Okay. But well, I'm sure I'm the sure audience does. Do. Yeah. And Josh Gad was national champion in original oratory a few years after I was in the national finals in original oratory. So... uh just a little bit of a tidbit there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> so what what
0: played into your decision to to not drink and, and do drugs at that point?
1: Well, um, believe it or not, my initial decision was that my parents didn't really have any alcohol in the house. So I never really interacted with it. And because I was such a nerd, I didn't have too many friends who did have alcohol in their house. Like, all my friends were teetotalers. They were totally cool. They didn't have any drugs or or drinking in their lives, so I never interacted with it. The first time I really interacted with alcohol was in school, in, in IU, in college. However, I had watched so many other friends of mine who were gay, who ended up having some really, really bad, unprotected sex when they were drinking, and they ended up HIV positive. Of course, I would later choose to have unprotected sex and roll the dice, but I still made judgment calls. Like I never, like, I'm going to have to get a little bit graphic for a second, but um, I never let anybody climax within me, you know? And I, I felt like even though I was being a little bit reckless with who I had sex with and how many people I had unprotected sex with, I do feel like that I was probably about as smart as I could be even though I was playing Russian roulette with my life so that 's why i didn't want to drink because I felt like all of those inhibitions would go away, and I would really just do whatever I wanted to do, and I was probably certain to get it it's a bit of a there's a bit of a contradiction there, but you just have to trust me in that I felt like at the time, even though I was playing Russian roulette with my life, that I had an air of control over what was going on, and I knew that if I was drinking and I became drunk that I would probably make some choices that I would come to regret, not the least of which is like drinking and driving or sleeping with someone who I didn't want to be with or uh, contracting HIV and having unprotected sex. So uh, it, was, uh, it was just a call that I made. And the most simplest explanation that the audience will probably relate to is I didn't like the taste of it. Like, I mean, Taryn, you have been with me. I eat like a child, okay? I like Coca-Cola and pizza and ice cream, I didn't like the taste of beer. I tried it a couple times. Like I had a little taste of it and wine. I, I tried wine. I tried vodka. I just, but I would like, I would sip it and I would just go, like, it's just terrible. Like, uh, you know, this, this tastes terrible. Like you people actually drink this because you like it. Like I never found anything redeeming as far as the taste of alcohol goes. So that combined with the fact that you make stupid decisions on it. I mean, Coca-Cola was my vice, and I didn't need anything else.
0: (laughs) Did you ever run into any problems with having a social life as somebody that didn't drink?
1: No, I was always one of the most popular people because I was like the designated driver. You know, I mean, people are like, oh, well, Brent doesn't drink. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll let him take the wheel here. Uh, you know, he can drive us home or uh, he can take care of us or Brent, you're not drinking. So you can do this. So you can take care of our money. Brent, hold this. You're not drinking. You know, it was always one of that. So uh, I was I was happy to do it because I liked having all of my faculties about me when I was out and about.
0: Yeah. Did, it, did you ever get the uh, like... Oh, you you're so you're so good for not drinking. Yeah, you make smart. City. Why am I so dumb? Why are you? Why are you... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm sure you get
1: that too. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think people looked at me a bit like a weirdo at the time. Like you know, you don't drink. Okay, fine. More for me. Cool. You know, if you don't want it, I'll take it. You know, kind of thing. So uh, yeah, I, I, I never I never felt a bit bad about it because I just hated the taste of it anyway. Not the least of which, I didn't really want to do it because I didn't want to lose control.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, I relate to that. Like, uh, you know, it's. I think it's certainly one of the reasons people call me a robot is, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that I don't. Um, and, and yeah, I think it, it's something that makes you sort of stand out in some ways. Is like, uh, like, why, why don't you do this thing?
1: Right, I always took it as a badge of honor too. Like I had never had a drink of alcohol in my life. Like I, I, like I said, I had tasted it, but I had never had like if you gave me a drink and like set a glass down, I had never drunk something like that before in my life. Never once. Not even really more than a sip. So I was like, look, I've never had anything before, and I never done any drugs. So I thought I was pretty much home free. Little did I know that uh, addiction can can uh, jump up and grab anybody.
0: Yeah, well, do you think that contributed in any way, the fact that you hadn't experienced anything like that before, that it hit you so hard?
1: Yes, I feel like that I was unable to wrap my head around the fact that I had become an addict because I was saying to myself, this can't happen to me. Like, I'm not like that. That's what made my ears perk up when you said that you never do it because I was that guy. And I remember saying to myself, well, I'll never take any drugs. I mean, I wouldn't choose to do that. I mean, why would you want to do something like that? That just seems like uh, not such a good idea. And, you know, why would you willingly go into something where you know what the outcome's going to be? But yet it happened to me. And you've talked to me. I'm a smart guy. So I'm sure you're saying to yourself, well, how did it happen? Like, I mean, you knew what the likely outcome was of addiction, And so was it your weakness that caused it to happen or was it something else? And I'll tell you, the issue that happened was that my body just really responded well to Percocet. It was like a lock and a key. And Percocet was the key and my body was the lock. And it just fit perfectly. And I felt like I was on cloud nine. I felt like I could do anything. It gave me so much confidence. I could go out and play five sets of tennis and not be tired at all. Like it gave me so much energy, and I didn't think anything was wrong. I didn't really look at it like, "Oh, Brent, you're doing something wrong." I looked at it like, "This is this is really great." Like, uh, uh you know, I all I need is just take a couple tablets of Percocet, and I feel just totally fine. I don't have to worry about anything in my life. Like, I feel totally and utterly wonderful. Nothing can touch me. And <clears throat> as I told you. When that woman came in and she fraudulently had that prescription for Percocet and we filled it and then we caught her, we arrested her or they arrested her. And then my sergeant gave those pills back to me. I made such a drastic error in such a miscalculation because I took those pills home and no one missed them because why would they miss them? The count was right. And I had 360 pills of Percocet to play with and I was not going to sell them because I didn't know how to do that. And why would I? Because I wanted all these pills anyway. And I thought, you know, this will last me for like five, six years. Fast forward to four months later, they're all gone. So uh, it 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 grabs you really, really fast. What happened was this. This is how this. I will tell you the day that I realized I might be in trouble. I had taken Percocet, and this is after I had taken those pills home. I had taken two tablets of Percocet every day for about a month and a half and occasionally I would take them in the afternoon as well when I got home. I would take like one tablet or two tablets. One day, I went to work in the military to the pharmacy, and I didn't feel so well. And I was like, I feel like I have the flu. I felt really, really awful. And it dawned on me, I had forgotten to take my pills that day. And so I tried to like get through it. I was like, well, maybe I can go home at, at lunchtime and grab them, Okay. But 10 o'clock rolls around and I'm feeling terrible. I mean, I'm really feeling like something's wrong with me. I have a terrible case of the flu. I'm really lethargic. I, I feel really down right now. And so what I did, I went to where we keep all of the pills that have been filled and are ready to go. And I found a bottle of Percocet that had been filled for a soldier who had not come in to pick it up. There's a word that we used to call these soldiers, I forget. But uh, basically, they were non-compliant. Basically, they were people that had had prescriptions filled. You know, the military, everything's free. So these prescriptions were filled. And sometimes people don't want their Percocet, believe it or not. Some people, some like my mom, like... Uh, She says it just makes her sleepy, so she didn't want it. So uh, there were many, many many people like this. And usually what would happen is after seven days, we would take those prescriptions and put them back. But I was able to steal one of the prescriptions. I think it only had 12 Percocet in there. But I knew that the soldier who it was for was not coming in because it had been like two weeks. And so I grabbed it. I went to the bathroom. I took the two pills, and I walked back out, and about... Five minutes later, I felt great. I felt like, totally like I was on top of the world again. And I remember walking back into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought to myself, oh my. (laughs) Like, I might actually be dependent on these. The word addict was not yet in my vocabulary. I was not an addict, I was certain of that. But I knew that I was dependent. I had changed my body chemistry enough where my body was used to having these pills and i had forgotten to take them and so i was going to have to wean myself off of this sooner or later and i was totally confident that i could do that and of course i was really really wrong about that so how does it how did it get to that point was
0: it like when you have all of these pills and you're thinking this is going to last me a really long time like what was it that kept you coming back to it just like it, I mean, was it like the sort of thing where it's like, oh, well, today was kind of a bad day, so I'll just have some of this to make it feel better?
1: Yeah, a little bit of that. There was also a toothache that happened in there that really uh, augmented the amount of pills that I was taking. You know, I think at this point I was up to three or four pills a day, and also I was taking some to sleep as well. So I was quickly going through them, and then one day I had a toothache. And I think they had given me a root canal. And of course, they had given me a prescription for Percocet. But the prescription they had given me was like 12 Percocet, which to me was like three doses. So I went home and I took it and nothing happened because my tolerance was so high by this point. So instead of taking four tablets, I took seven tablets. I took seven tablets of Percocet all at one time in order to make my pain go away. And I was successful. My pain did go away. But in doing so... In taking seven tablets for two or three days, now all of a sudden my tolerance had really jumped up and my body was demanding more and more pills in order to keep up with my constant need for opiates.
0: Did it feel kind of similar to the period of time when you felt like you probably had HIV, where this, you just had this thing looming over you, like you knew it was probably going to be a problem for you, but you just hadn't faced it yet?
1: Yes, I knew that I was in trouble. And I could not see a way out. I kept saying to myself, well, you can just wean yourself off the pills. But it was always tomorrow. It was never today. Always tomorrow. I can do this tomorrow. I can wean myself off. But once you get up to like 7, 8, 9, 12, 15, 20, 25, 30, I mean, there's just no room to wean yourself off. You cannot do it yourself. And because I was in the military at the time, remember, I was still in the military at the time, I couldn't turn to anybody for help because I was certain they would kick me out if they knew that I was an addict and they sure as hell would have sent me to jail if they knew that I was stealing from them. Like if I told them that I was using and I told them how many Percocets I was using, I would have had to, com- I would have had to admit to a crime because they would have either figured out that I stole them from the pharmacy or they would have figured out that I bought them off the street. But one of the two is a crime. So no matter what, I was going to go to jail. And people don't understand Then in the military, you don't have the same rights that you do as a civilian. So it it doesn't necessarily take reasonable doubt for them to throw you in the slammer in the military. I remember one day, actually, now that I think about it, it was the same day that I had the problems with the toothache. So I had a toothache on a Friday. They'd given me a root canal. They'd given me some Percocet. And I was going to Raleigh, North Carolina at the time, because remember, I was an escort. And so I had taken some Percocet with me. And I took the Percocet that day, but I wasn't getting enough Percocet because it wasn't making my pain go away. So I took more than I had on me. I took like seven and then seven in the morning, then seven again. And by Sunday morning, I was out. I didn't have any more on me. They were all still back at my place in Fayetteville. I started to hit withdrawal really fast that Sunday morning. And I quickly started jonesing for pills. I quickly realized that I was in trouble. I needed to get home as fast as possible because I'm starting to panic. I'm starting to panic that I need my pills and I don't feel right right now. So let's go home and get the pills. And I remember that drive home from Raleigh to Fayetteville. I was probably doing 85 the whole way. Like I could not wait to get home. My body was absolutely crying out for pills at this point, crying out for anything I could put inside of it that would make it feel better. Because a lot of people don't understand with addiction, when you start taking opiates, that's like an unnatural way of producing dopamine in your body. And so your body starts producing less dopamine in your body to combat the fact that you're taking pills. Like your body's always trying to remain in homeostasis. So that's what causes you to have cravings because you're when you're taking pills, your body is starting to depend on those pills. And all of a sudden, when those pills aren't there anymore, your body is like, Dude, what the hell? Like, you're supposed to be taking these pills. Like, we're not producing anything anymore. You're supposed to be doing it yourself with the pills that you're taking. So it takes your body a while to catch up to the fact that you're not producing that dopamine anymore unnaturally. It's going to have to do it itself. So that's why you start craving for the drugs. And that's what leads you into this really terrible cycle of addiction where you'll do anything to get the pills. So
0: you eventually run out of these Pills, the, the three hundred and sixty that you had, right? right? So, at that point, like, what are you what are you thinking? Into, what's, what's your game plan?
1: Well, obviously, it had been about a month and a half, maybe two months. I forget how long it was that the three hundred and sixty pills lasted. I know that it wasn't nearly as long as I thought they would. And once I was down to about fifty pills, I realized I was going to have to steal again from the pharmacy. And I found a way that I could get the pills out of the pharmacy, have them be accounted for, and yet not have the prescription go through a pharmacist. And I could get into the all of the mechanics of how I did that, but this is what I will say to you. It's not that I was smart that I made that happen. Addicts always find a way because they are desperate. We are desperate for the drugs that we've been putting into our system and we will find a way to get them. That's just the long story of it all. It's just a symptom of the disease where it forces you to get the pills because you cannot possibly exist. Like I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. That's how I felt at the time. I could not foresee a life in front of me where I didn't have the pills in my system. So I remember going into the pharmacy that day, creating a fake prescription, sending it through the Pharmacy 2000. They filled it. I grabbed it before the pharmacist could could see it. And I put it in my pocket and it I must have done that at least eight or nine times. And if I had been caught even one time, I would have been sent to jail. I would have been in Fort Leavenworth doing hard time and hard labor. And somehow, again, God had his hand on me somehow.
0: So you managed to make it through your time in the military without getting caught here, Um, but you're still addicted. And that's around the time that the Peterson trial comes up, right?
1: Right. The timeline of of it all is this. With around four months to go in the military, I'm up to taking 20, 30, 40 Percocet a day. That's how bad it is. And if anybody knows anything about Percocet, the active ingredient is fine. That's the oxycodone, otherwise known as oxycontin, that many, many people are addicted to. But there's also 325 milligrams of Tylenol in every tablet of Percocet. So that would be like grabbing... A bottle of Tylenol and swallowing 40 tablets. I mean, that is freaking nuts. Your liver can only handle 4,000 milligrams of acetaminophen a day. And yet I was putting 12,000 milligrams into my system, totally poisoning myself. Even though I was taking 40 pills of Percocet a day to make my body satiated from the cravings. My stomach could not handle 12,000 milligrams of acetaminophen a day. I started vomiting it up. I wasn't able to keep it down. So I was in this really weird place where I was taking the tablets. I had to have the tablets in order to be fine, but my body would no longer accept what I was putting into it. I will tell you that this is how bad it got. It got so bad that I remember one day in the military, I took 30 tablets at one time, I swallowed all of them. About 20 minutes later, I was with a friend of mine who was also in the military and she was uh, helping some of the customers and I said, I need to go to the bathroom. She said, okay. I walked into the bathroom. I got sick, but I didn't get sick into the toilet bowl. I got sick onto the floor because I knew what was happening. And I literally picked up my own vomit and put it back into my mouth because I had to have those pills. I mean, I had, Taryn, I had to have them. I could not exist without them, and I had just used about 30 tablets. There was no way on God's green earth that I was going to let those 30 tablets go to waste because I, had, I, 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 could, I couldn't just spare them. I had to have them, you know? So that tells you how desperate that I got that I was willing to pick up my own vomit off the floor and swallow it again in order to remain okay. And that's the thing where I was at the time. A lot of people will say, so you were taking 20, 30, 40 tablets to be high? No. Getting high had long since passed. I was not getting high anymore. I was taking 20, 30, 40 tablets of Percocet a day to just be okay, just to function, just to get through a day and go to sleep at night. I mean, that's all it was for. So it started off as a game. It started off as something fun where, hey, I feel great. I'm on Percocet. This is fun. Like I could play five sets of tennis. And all of a sudden, fast forward six months later, and I'm picking my own vomit off the floor in order to make myself just feel okay. That's how bad it got. So I realized I'm in trouble and I can't turn to the military for help. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna take a page out of my old book like I did with HIV. I'm gonna go to an anonymous clinic a methadone clinic. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the clinic and I'm going to tell them this is what's been happening to me and they're going to save me. So I went to the methadone clinic. I didn't tell them I was a soldier because I wasn't sure if they'd narc on me, but I did tell them how much Percocet I was taking. They watched me. They could tell that I was in withdrawal. They put me on uh, methadone and uh, I instantly felt better. So methadone was a bit of a savior for me at the time. Methadone is a long acting opiate that they give to uh, people who are recovering addicts to alleviate the withdrawal symptoms. So uh, I took methadone for about a week and a half. But the problem with going to the methadone clinic is the methadone clinic is only open from like 4 a.m. until 7 a.m. You have to get there by 7 a.m. or you don't get your methadone. And as you have learned from being friends with me, Taryn Armstrong, (laughs) I do not like to get up in the morning like that, okay? I am a lazy son of a bitch. I like my sleep. And so I was like, you know what I can do? Rather than going to the methadone clinic i 'll write myself a fake prescription for methadone from the pharmacy because the pharmacy also carried methadone for the cancer patients so I wrote a ph- a pharmacy prescription for methadone. I think I did the max like three hundred and sixty tablets or something like that and Methadone was something that would last me because there's there's a bit of a ceiling effect to methadone where you know you can't take more than you're really supposed to otherwise it you sort of start losing the benefit of it. So, it was able and it also it it also alleviated the roller coasterness of it all. So, I was able to take it and I had enough so that I was able to basically wean myself off even after I got out of the military. So, I got out of the military in March of 2002. I still had about 200 tablets of methadone. I'm with my partner at the time, Mac, and I told him what was going on. I was like, look, I'm trying to take these because I'm a bit of an addict and uh, I feel like I need to wean myself off. So I would start with 10 tablets a week, then go down to nine, then to eight, then to seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. However, the one flaw in my plan was, it's a lot easier to go from 10 to nine than it is to go from two to one. Because If you look percentage-wise about the amount of opiate you're putting into your body, eh, there's a big difference there. Uh, So uh, once I got down to two and one, I started taking more than I should, and I quickly ran out of tablets, and addiction and withdrawal hit me very, very hard. For an entire week, I did not sleep, and I couldn't really turn to anybody else. I probably could have, but I kind of just wanted... It's sort of like a smoker who decides that they're going to quit cold turkey, like... I was like, I'm never going to get well if I just go back and ask for more methadone. So I'll just deal with it. And so from Monday until Friday, I did not sleep once. And that was probably the most trying experience of my life. And then about three months later, the Peterson trial hit. My name was all over the news. I started using again because I felt terrible about my situation. I was embarrassed. Even though I was proud in the trial, I was... Not exactly happy with the experiences of it. And the thing about addiction that a lot of people don't understand is it quickly rears its head. Like, you think like, oh, I didn't use for six months so I can take two tablets of Percocet again. No, bitch. Your body remembers that you used to take 40 tablets. And so very, very quickly, I'm taking seven, eight, nine, ten tablets of Percocet. I'm writing fake prescriptions. I'm calling them into various pharmacies. I'm committing a crime on a daily basis, basically. And until I finally got busted, um, I would have. I, I think I would have probably continued to do that because I just, I just could not control myself anymore.
0: So you managed to to wean yourself off and, and go cold turkey, and you weren't taking any Percocet up until the trial, right? And then once the trial hits, you felt like, uh, like you needed it to feel better. Like, what was the thought process there? Yeah, it
1: was right. Uh, first of all, I was high on the witness stand, just so you know. So uh, I, uh, I had taken Percocet a couple days... I started taking Percocet a couple days before my testimony because I was just... I felt trapped. And this is what happens to addicts when you feel trapped. You start looking for your old crutches again. And Percocet was my crutch. And so I started calling in prescriptions. I actually couldn't call in Percocet, so I was able to call in Vicodin. It's, it's a li- little bit of legalese as far as Schedule 2 and Schedule 3 goes. But suffice it to say, I was able to call in enough drugs to make me feel high again And, uh, I did it because I was, I felt trapped. I felt trapped by the Peterson trial. I couldn't run. I couldn't hide. I was going to have to go on the witness stand. I was going to have to embarrass my parents. My life was going to be turned upside down. Everything I had worked for up until that point was going to be undone and I just could not handle it.
0: And when was the decision to try to be a doctor? When did, when did you make that decision?
1: I mean, I'm, that was the whole point of getting the GI Bill. I had always had dreams of becoming a doctor. I felt like that uh, I was smart enough, and people always said, "You should be a doctor. You're so smart. Why don't you be a doctor?" And uh, so, all throughout the army, and that was why I became a medic and a pharmacy tech in the first place, was because I knew I was eventually going to go into medicine. Um, obviously, those dreams were dashed once addiction hit. Not that you can't be a physician and be beke- be a recovering addict. I. I, I certainly know people who have done it, but it certainly wasn't possible for me at the time
0: so you'd finally managed to to wean yourself off of the drug you you f- still feel like you're you have started a, a
1: a new what happened was i like i said i I got out of the military, I used the methadone to wean myself off. I went cold turkey after I ran out of methadone, and I was fine for about six months. Peterson trial hits, I start using again, I start calling in prescriptions to various pharmacies, and I'm off to the races again. And that's when I eventually got busted by the police.
0: Okay, so you had gone to, uh, you had
1: started a new college degree, right? After yeah, when I military? got out of the military, I enrolled and I enrolled at North Carolina State University, and I was a chemistry major, and I was actually really good. I liked chemistry, and it was very, very fun, and I thought that it would be a great pre-med major, and uh, everything was going great until I got a call from Sergeant So and So with the Durham Police Department wanting me to testify in the Peterson trial.
0: And that's when the addiction came back. Yeah, that's when it came back. It
1: came back hard. It was like it never left. And uh, I instantly regretted it, of course, but, but I'm back on the addiction train now. I can't get off of it. And plus, I'm really good at calling in these prescriptions. No one is any the wiser. So I testified in the Peterson trial, and I think the addiction must have continued for about another month and a half. Michael Peterson was convicted of murder. He was sent to jail. And about three weeks after the verdict... I called in a prescription to a Kmart pharmacy, and I went in to pick it up that day, the next day. And I can't remember exactly how, but they basically tricked me. They knew what was up, and they gave me a bottle that did not have any Percocet in it. It was basically like aspirin or something like that. And they told me it was Percocet, and I said, thank you very much. And as I'm walking out, the police grab me, and they say, you're under arrest. And I'm like, oh fuck <laughs> I'm like oh my god this can't be happening to me so they threw me in jail and of course the other thing was that I was in addiction at the time so I started going into withdrawal in the jail cell like I started I was already in withdrawal when I woke up that morning I was already feeling like I need my pills so I went to go get them at the at the Kmart pharmacy they busted me I couldn't get my pills I didn't have my pills and so now I'm literally slobbering snot and vomit in the jail cell and to make matters worse, they know who exactly I am. They know that I'm the witness from the Michael Peterson trial, and I had given the police a bit of a hard time when I was on the witness stand. So not not a good situation. Not a good situation. They actually did allow me to post bail that day. But again, I'm an addict. So the minute I got out of jail, I ran back to Mac. I didn't tell him what had happened. I called in another prescription at another Pharmacy, and I got busted again. And this time, they were not going to let me go so easily because they realized I had a problem. So at this point, the police are being okay with me. Actually, there was an officer, I'm going to name her, her name was Officer Whitehead, who did show me some mercy. She actually put me in a jail cell of my own, and uh, she knew that I was in trouble, and she asked me if I needed any water. I, I will always remember her kindness. I'm sure she's not listening to this podcast, but uh, I was always touched by how human she was that day. Everyone else treated me like, like oh, look, there's the faggot who was in the Michael Peterson trial, but she had a lot of empathy. And so uh, I felt like there was a little bit of an angel in the room with me, so to speak. So uh, the judge who was overseeing the bail proceedings said, I obviously needed help. To make a long story short, I ended up going to an inpatient addiction center on the coast of North Carolina. I was there for 28 days. When I came back, I had done everything the cops had asked of me. But the prosecutor who was overseeing my case wanted to make a name for herself. Like me, like me, like me, like me, like me, who had completed rehab, was given probation because this was my first offense. I had never done anything in my entire life. She wanted to throw the book at me, she wanted to convict me of a felony. And the only reason that she wanted to do so was what she told my attorney was because of the crimes that I had admitted to committing during the Michael Peterson trial. Basically, she was holding me accountable for my immunized testimony. So I quickly realized, like, you can't do that. I mean, like, I claimed the Fifth Amendment and then they gave me immunity. You can't use that against me. So my attorney went to the judge. And Taryn, I say this to you in all seriousness, this prosecutor lied to the judge. The judge asked her, did you say that to his defense attorney that you were holding him accountable for the crimes that he had admitted to committing during the Michael Peterson trial, meaning my prostitution? And she said, no, your honor, I did not say that. So my faith in the prosecutors, after seeing what I had gone through during the Michael Peterson trial and my interactions with them in the here and now were very low. I realized She's just trying to make a name for herself. She doesn't care about what the truth is. She's willing to lie to the judge. She just wants to convict me to have it on her, like, uh, like, uh, as a trophy. I, I was a trophy. I realized, oh, my God, like, I'm like, I'm now in the Michael Peterson position because they went after Michael Peterson because he had been critical of the police officers. Fast forward to the present This prosecutor was just trying to make a name for herself by convicting me. So she didn't want to offer me a plea deal. She wanted to throw the book at me. Luckily for me, the judge did not believe her, or at least thought there was enough evidence where they would have to go to a bit of a mini trial to find out what the truth was, a hearing, so to speak. And I think her superiors realized what had happened, and they didn't want the scene of one of their own being called a liar in an open courtroom and so they quickly made a deal with me but if it had been left up to her she would have convicted me of felony drug conviction and uh, she was perfectly willing to lie to the judge about her motives for doing so
0: what would that have meant for you
1: well i would have had a felony on my record number one instead of the misdemeanor that i had which was you know I i mean i'm sure you're Uh, prim and proper, but uh, there are plenty of people who have little misdemeanors on their conviction. There's a big difference between having a misdemeanor for possession of drugs on your conviction, which eventually you can have expunged, and a felony. I mean, there's just two different worlds, and it's all about what the prosecutors choose to charge you with. So again i'm sure there's lots of pro- great prosecutors out there and a lot of great police officers. I should probably indict the, the prosecutors far more than the police officers, but uh, to me, they were all one and the same the uh, The issue was that they just didn't care about the truth they They just wanted a, a trophy for their wall so how are you
0: feeling in this moment? Had you managed to come off the drugs in the uh, inpatient? treatment facility?
1: Yes. I had managed to come off the drugs, but I was still having terrible cravings. I was still feeling so terrible about myself. Like every day I woke up and I would have what we addicts call a using dream. It's when you wake up, and, I'm sorry, you're sleeping and you wake up and in the dream, you have the pills and you're about ready to swallow them in the dream. And then you wake up. And of course your body doesn't, realize the fact that you were just dreaming it thinks that's reality so your body's all jonesed up to have the pills and there's no pills coming so the dreams more than anything really really tried my patience and they would happen all the time like anytime i would i i would be scared to go to sleep because i was scared i was going to have another using dream and wake up in cold sweats wanting my drugs back so um I eventually was able to make a deal with the prosecutors. They gave me probation. They, gave me, they let me plead to a misdemeanor that I could have expunged later on. And I ended up moving away from North Carolina because a couple of different reasons, but not least of which was I felt like that there was nowhere for me to go. I could not build a life for myself in North Carolina with this much notoriety. So I moved back with my parents. And I really thought moving back with my parents would help. I was trying to go to 12-step programs. I was trying to beat the addiction. I was trying to, you know, leave it up to a higher power, as they claim in the force in the in the twelve step programs, but I was not able to do so. Um, this gets into a little bit of a serious area, but uh, I started using again when I was up with, living with my parents up in Kentucky, and my mom actually <laughs> saw me going into withdrawal one day because I didn't have my pills, and I was on the couch, and my legs were just shaking and I was vomiting, and I was in cold sweats. And she was like, honey, what's going on? And I, was, I finally told her the truth of it all and said, this is what's happening. And she's like, well, we need to get you help. And so as luck would have it, my dad overheard a commercial on the radio about, you know, are you in addiction? Are you trapped in addiction right now? If so, we may have the solution for you. Call this number, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he did. And so he found out a little bit of information and uh, my mom did a little bit of digging and realized that since I was a vet, I was eligible to go to the VA for healthcare. And we found out that this specific program with this medicine was taking place at the VA right near me. It was like one of the five test places that they were testing this medicine. So I went in, like, I was an absolute wreck, Taryn. I mean, like, you think that you've seen me at my worst. I, you, have, you don't know nothing, honey. Like, I, I was like sniveling. I was like in cold sweats. I had a fever. I, was, I could vomit at any moment. And I walked into the doctor's office at the VA, and they listened to me tell my story. And they, they said, how much Percocet and Vicodin have you been taking? And I told them. And they said, well, we have a medicine we want you to try. Not a lot of people have tried it. Um, It's called Suboxone. The technical name for it is buprenorphine. And um, it's a bit of a synthetic opiate. And we think, because I've been told for like the past three to four years of rehab that if I was strong enough, I could beat this. And yet I was waking up every day having using dreams. And I did not, I always felt like I was walking around with like a little black cloud over me, you know? The VA was the first place I ever went to where they said to me, you know what? We believe you. We actually believe that you're walking around with a little black cloud over you all the time and you don't feel quite right. And no matter how hard you fight and how many 12 step programs you go to, you're just not going to feel better. So they told me that, well, what had happened was this your body produces like a certain amount of dopamine every day, right? So you start using, and your body produces less dopamine, okay? But then when you stop using, your body realizes, oh my God, you're not using anymore. I need to produce the dopamine that we were producing before. If you use long enough and hard enough like I did, and I used for like almost four to five years, your body never quite gets back up to 100%. Like it'll get back up to like 98%, 97%, even 99%. But it will not get back up to 100%. And that little difference between 98% and 100% is enough to make you feel awful. It's enough to make you feel like you're not complete. It's enough to make you feel like you're walking around with a little black cloud. It's enough for the using dreams to take place. It's enough for you to never escape the cycle of addiction. So they gave me this tablet. They said, put it under your tongue. Go ahead and sit in the waiting room. Tell us how you feel 15 minutes from now. I said, okay. I put it under my tongue, and I tell you this in all seriousness, Taryn Armstrong. It was like... I was in the wizard of Oz and Dorothy (laughs) opens up the door and all of a sudden the world changes to color. That is how it felt. And I know that sounds so gay, (laughs) but it's how I felt because I felt so terrible when I walked in there. And I just look again, Taryn, the days of getting high Honey, they were gone. I just wanted to feel okay. I wanted to feel like the Brent that I used to feel like. I wanted to feel like the boy that enlisted in the army. I wanted that boy back, but I didn't know how to get back to him. This medicine gave that back to me. It was an absolute miracle. The medicine basically tricks my body into thinking that I'm getting the opiates that I used to take, but. The half-life of the medicine is so long-acting, it's actually 42 hours. So you're not on the roller coaster that you were on before where you had to take the pills like every eight hours to get high and to feel normal. I take one tablet under my tongue, let it dissolve. There's no euphoria attached to it. I'm not getting high. People said, aren't you just replacing one drug with another? Are you kidding me? Before I was taking 40 Percocet a day. Now I'm taking one tablet and placing it under my tongue and I feel fine. It's just that there's a lot of judging of addicts that I don't understand. And this drug saved my life. As you know, I still take it to this day. 13 years later, I have been clean because of this medicine. I take one tablet. Actually, I take it at night now because I feel like it works better at night. But uh, nevertheless, I take one tablet every day. It's called medically assisted treatment. Those people who are in medicine out there will understand where I'm coming from. There's just a lot of misinformation when it comes to addicts. A lot of people think that we're too weak, that we're not strong enough to resist the temptation, that it's a choice, that it's all about willpower. And I can just tell you that for me, it was never about any of those things. I never felt weak for a moment. I never felt like I didn't have enough willpower What I did feel like there was something wrong with my body and going to the VA and hearing people say to me, you know what, we actually believe you and here's some medicine that can help you was just, it was an absolute miracle. I cannot tell you that enough, that someone invented a pill that did exactly what I was hoping would happen when I looked in the mirror that day and said, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I need a magic pill to help save me and somehow I found it. Again, I land on my feet.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it is incredible. And and uh, you're totally right that, you know, people, they have this idea of, of addicts as, as weak. And, and I think it's, it, you know, it's true of, of people who have what they think of addicts. And it's true of what people think of, of a lot of different mental illnesses, I think, where it's like, it's something that, you know, it's hard, you can't physically see it. It's not like your arm is cut off, but it's something that is still physically wrong with you, and it's it's not something that I think a lot of people are able to understand if they haven't been through it uh, I mean I'm sure you can relate because you yeah. you you are you were like me, who are somebody who like I can understand the concept of it, but i can't I can ever understand what it feels like to be in that situation and then you you became uh somebody who was in that situation.
1: Right, and that was the thing I had left out of my story. Actually, I want to make sure I get two things across. Number one, when I was at the rehab center, at the inpatient rehab center, my roommate was a heroin addict. And for the first week that I was there, I was very, very hoity-toity about everything. I was like, you know, well, I'm not one of those people. Like, I mean, I know he's a heroin addict and he's like a big-time user, but I use pills from the pharmacy. Like, I don't get stuff off the street like you people do. (laughs) So I don't know what you think I am, but I'm not like you. And it took about a week for me to let those walls down and realize that I was just like everybody else. And the fact that this boy was a heroin user... um, I, I I was actually closer to him than I would ever know, like I mean i was I, I was him, like I could have become him if my addiction had continued on the path that it was, but luckily, I got busted by the cops, and that's what pulled me back from probably going down that path. The other thing I wanted to make sure that I told people was, you know think of it this way: when someone has diabetes type two, they've consumed so much bad food and so much sugar that their body changes the amount of insulin they're producing, and they have to take insulin to combat that, okay? The same thing with addiction. You've used for so long that you've changed the normal brain chemistry in your body or the normal blood chemistry in your body. Your body isn't producing the same amount of good-feeling dopamine that you were before. There's a little bit of a gap there, and so you have to use some medicine to fill the gap. Again, do we blame the person who's diagnosed with diabetes type 2 for their illness? No, we don't. We say you have to take you know, insulin shots. That's what you do if you have diabetes type 2. It just boggles my mind that more people don't understand the nature of addiction, what it does to people, how it wrecks their lives, and how addicts don't want to be addicts anymore, especially when they're looking for help. They want to solve the problem. They just don't know how to. Do you find
0: that people still very much look down at you, not only for having been an addict, but as somebody that still takes a pill to combat the effects of it?
1: There are some people who do. A lot of people, again, are very ignorant. I've actually had Twitter conversations with people. And in fact, I've interacted with some people who are friends of Rob as a podcast who are currently on the medicine that I'm on right now. And have been on for long periods of time. I've never known anybody who's been on it for as long as I have. I've never known anybody who's been on it for longer than 13 years. Um, however, I do interact with people occasionally who think, aren't you just trading one drug from another? And then I, I talk to them about the smoker who's destroyed their lungs and needs this medicine. You know, do we judge them? I've talked about the diabetes person who, you know, they destroyed their liver. Do we judge them? Again, addicts are just like everybody else. They made choices in their lives, not willing choices, but choices nonetheless and they 've hurt their body so much that they need medicine to combat that. A lot of med students right now are actually being taught about uh, what 's called mAT medically assisted treatment, and uh, they are a lot more knowledgeable of what they used to be. I would say a lot of doctors who are over the age of forty five are probably pretty ignorant and they're more they 're more in favor of the old kind of 12-step program, but anybody under the age of 40 who's in medicine right now, I feel like has heard about medically-assisted treatment. My partner actually went to Johns Hopkins when he was uh, in medical school, and one of his friends ended up being one of the first studies of buprenorphine. So Jay actually talked to him and called him for like the first time in 10 years and said, you know, so tell me about this medicine, and I want to know everything about it. So uh, once I started taking it, I I found it. I made it my mission to make sure that I learned everything about it.
0: Do you ever feel like do you ever worry about uh, you know like what if it stops working or oh, no. what if you go back uh like is this, is this something that's still present in your life at all?
1: Uh no, I would say no. Um I have been away from addiction for 13 years. Now, if I stopped taking buprenorphine today, Um, my body would quickly, well, not quickly, after a couple days, it would start to seep back into withdrawal because it's a synthetic opiate. It's still an opiate, even though it's synthetic. So I don't worry about it because the drugs that I take are so long acting. Let's say that I had a bad day. Let's say that something really terrible happened, knock wood. And I decided, you know what, I'd like to get high today. The great thing about buprenorphine is that it's a hundred times more powerful than morphine. And so any drugs that I take will just be like putting water in my system. You see what I mean? It, 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 it's more competitive than any drug I could possibly take. So if I take, like I could swallow a whole bottle of Percocet right now and nothing would happen to me. It would just be like taking water pills because the buprenorphine is so powerful and so long acting that it protects you from yourself. If you have a weak moment... You're going to have to wait three, four, five days for the buprenorphine to get out of your system, and then maybe you could get high. But waiting those three to four to five days, that's a long wait. So usually, most people are going to end up okay. I know that I have never been tempted since I've started buprenorphine to start using again. I have played around with buprenorphine like any addict would do and sort of test the bounds of what I could take and what I can't take. But I've never felt like I was going to spiral back into addiction again. The medicine always works. There's no tolerance to it because there's a bit of a ceiling effect to it. And I know, again, I'm getting a little bit medically with everybody, medically speaking with everybody. But uh, suffice it to say, I could take it for the rest of my life, and my doctor thinks I'm going to be on it for the rest of my life. He just thinks that uh, I used for so long and for so hard that I destroyed my brain chemistry. And I need this medicine in order to feel normal. And I, I, I sort of wish that you could have seen me when I was in addiction because you would understand the man and what I was capable of as an addict because I was somebody you wouldn't have wanted to meet. I was stealing from people. I was rifling through other people's medicine cabinets. I was stealing money from people. I wasn't very dependable. Um, everything about me was just something that uh, I, I just hated the person that I was becoming. And so uh, this medicine has given me my life back. And 13 years later, I'm still here.
0: I mean, it sounds amazing. Uh, the like the effects of it sound uh, incredible.
1: It really is. And uh, a lot of people don't know about it. So I've always made it my mission to every anniversary, I try to tell people about Suboxone. That's the that's the brand name for buprenorphine. But uh, I try to tell people about it as much as I can. Uh, for some people, it doesn't work. For some people, they don't like it. Other people... They just don't respond well to it, but most of the people that I know that have taken it have taken a liking to it.
0: Okay, so you finally you've got this this miracle drug. You are, you're back at home with your parents, and this is kind of like the the turning point. And I think this is we're going to pause again here. Uh, the the part two again? of Brent, yes. <laughs> uh- <laughs> We're gonna finally we're gonna bring back we're gonna bring Brent back eventually uh for a part three to finish off. We're gonna talk about how he met his current partner, how he got on the prices right, and how he got involved with Rob as a podcast. Uh I hope you uh stay tuned for that. It'll come out eventually. We'll we'll get it we'll get it we'll get Brent back eventually. Uh there's so much to talk about with Brent, but uh this is this was the turning point, right?
1: This was the turning point, yeah. Uh finding uh buprenorphine was a godsend in my life because uh, I wasn't able to get a handle on my life previous. And once I took that medicine, like I said, it was like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I opened up and the world was color again. I remember driving home from the hospital that day with my partner like, oh my God. Like, because Taryn, you have to understand that I was certain that one of two things was going to happen. I was going to end up dead or I was going to end up in jail. That was the only two outcomes for my addiction. But then once I found this medicine, I was like, oh, my God, Monty, there's door number three. Like I can go through door number three and life might actually be pretty good. And so uh, that's what
0: happened. Did it feel very similar to how you felt when you discovered you had you didn't have HIV?
1: Yes. Oh, my God. I remember driving home with Mac. Oh, my God. Like I was just like. I can't believe this. Like, I I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's what was happening. I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, thinking, like, this can't be this easy. Like, I was certain I was going to be condemned to a life of addiction. And yet, I took this tablet and I feel totally fine. And not only that, I'm not craving. And I thought, well, maybe later on tonight, I'll start craving again. But it didn't happen. I went to sleep that night and I slept well. I, Taryn, I'm <laughs> like I'm almost crying talking about it. Like I slept like a baby that night and I woke up the next day no using dream, no nothing. I just woke up and I was like, oh my god, Brent, you've got your life back. How amazing is that?
0: It's incredible and and I'm so I'm so glad that it happened. Obviously, I mean. Uh like i mean to basically have to two periods of your life where you feel like you know th- this is very dark This this could end very poorly and you like you said like you you managed to land on your feet both times and uh it i think it, it you know obviously you were lucky in parts but i think it also requires a, a large amount of resiliency that you've shown um
1: well i i will say really quickly that uh I am not ignorant of the fact that I have had two miracles in my life. Maybe three, actually, if you really want to count uh, the last one. Um, Somehow avoiding contracting HIV was number one, and I was thankful to God for that. Finding Suboxone and using it to escape addiction was miracle number two. And I really feel like miracle number three is meeting Jay. And, of course, that's a whole story unto its own, but... uh, He was an angel in my life and is an angel in my life. And uh, so uh, I've been very lucky.
0: Yeah. And we will talk all about how Brent met Jay and their relationship and all of that. I know that's a huge part of Brent's life. So uh, excited to talk to him about that. Um, If you could say, like, if there was one thing that you could point to in terms of, like, how you have, how you managed to get through all of that and turn, continually managed to turn your life around after all the hardships that you've gone through? Is there anything that you can point to that says, like, this is how I did it?
1: I think more than anything, it's just that I have a knack for getting things done when I want them to get done. And I will own the fact that without my parents, I would have probably never found my medicine. Again, it was as simple as my dad hearing a commercial on the radio. And I remember talking to my dad going, Dad, there's no such thing as a magic bullet. Like, There's no magic pill out there that's going to make me feel better. Like, What is this? But then my mom also heard a commercial about it, and she started investigating it. And I was sort of like, well, what do I have to lose? Because I felt like I knew what door number one and door number two were in front of me. I was ready to see if there was anything else out there, and uh i i don't know if you want to call it destiny or luck or fate or a blessing, but I know that it wasn't all me. there was somebody else out there who was directing my life and saving me at those various points
0: so did that is that what helped you like start over essentially like what gives you strength to be like all right you know i I'm, I'm picking this up again i'm going to yes. like start to yeah,
1: Taryn, I feel like I looked at the abyss and I pulled myself back. Somehow, with God's help or my parents' help or medicine's help or something, I felt like I was on the precipice and somehow I pulled myself back. So everything else is just gravy. Like The, the, the fun guy that you interact with on a daily basis goes through life thinking, like I should have been dead 10 years ago. Like this is just all fun and games at this point. That's sort of why I have the attitude that I have going through life. Like I know Rob talked about the fact that he never once or he he wanted to grow up and become an adult like his father. I on the other hand, I'm I want to stay a kid because I love the fact that I've got my life back and I constantly feel young because I feel like I was saved. I feel like that I was going to die, and yet I was saved. And I just love that. It just gives me so much joy to be able to say to myself, somehow I'm still here. And because of that, I get to interact with my parents on a daily basis and I get to meet my niece and nephew and my sister. And uh, it just, I think about all, I think about the hole that would, that would have been left in their heart if I had gone away. And I'm glad that I didn't have to put them through that pain.
0: I'm 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 glad to have met you, Brent, because uh, you are such a, a, an awesome person to know, and uh, you you can, you can be hard to handle
1: sometimes. I know, but, right? Yes, but, I feel uh, like we got a little heavy there. Like <laughs> you can throw shade at me if you want. I like, uh, like, uh, was like a, a little bit, uh, a little bit, laying it on a little thick there. But uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh It's how I feel about my life, and uh, I hope that uh, part three, we can talk about more fun stuff and throw some shade at each other and uh, not be so serious, because there's nothing... Yeah, there's. I mean, like addiction in the Peterson trial. We're not exactly a great time. So uh, I, I look forward to talking about something that's a little bit more fun.
0: Yes. All right. So uh, I'm 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 glad that I'm able to uh, to share this this uh, experience that I have with Brent with other people here because uh, he's a very special person to know. Uh, even though yes, he is hard to deal with uh, sometimes. So uh, how dare you? <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do we have a hashtag?
1: <laughs> I, uh, I don't know um, I Could do something with like the, the Wizard of Oz thing that I said uh, yeah. but I've always I'm not making that up that's really how I felt at the time I remember in the car going home with Mac and telling him it was like it was like it's the Wizard of Oz when it goes from like black and white to color that's how my world changed it was like it was crazy like it was just it was, it was a miracle um, I don't know. You can be like miracles. Maybe like miracles happen or something like that. I know that's a little sappy, but uh, I feel like that's where we ended the podcast. And uh, I feel like this is also a, a little bit of a of a nod to your show. Like, how cool is this that, you know, a couple years ago, you weren't even involved with Rob as a podcast and now you have a show that's uh, named after yourself. Oh my God. How did this (laughs) happen, Taryn? (laughs) It's
0: a miracle, clearly. Uh, All right. So yeah, that that makes sense. Let's do hashtag miracles happen. Uh, As as corny as that might be, uh, I I think it's appropriate here. Um, And yeah, I mean, this whole experience has been great and I'm really, really happy that that having the show has allowed me to, to talk to you about this stuff uh in in such a way that we're getting to share it with with so many people i think uh it's it's inspirational in many many ways and and uh also just informative in many ways so um I'm, i'm glad you took the time to share it with me brent
1: you're quite welcome and good luck with your show i can't wait to talk to you again soon
0: all right, awesome. Uh, so make sure you tweet at us. We're at I'm at Armstrong Taren. Brent is at One Lucky Gay. Let us know what you thought of the podcast. Make sure you go to iTunes uh, and subscribe to the Terran Show. That's T A R A N uh, Show. And uh, subscribe. Leave a leave a it's rating a review if you if you want to. It's very very helpful if you do. All right. So thank you so much for joining us. I will see you next time.